We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is the second part of a two-part interview. The first part was released last week in our previous episode of Encountering Silence. Cynthia, I'd like to turn to your most recent book, uh, Love is the Answer, What is the Question?, which is, I guess, a collection of various essays and talks and so forth that you've done over about the last three years. But there's this, towards the back of the book, you're writing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, I guess, a statement about the, is it the wisdom school or the contemplative, the contemplative society? Mm -hmm. But you give kind of a series of Let's see, you write, here's my own quick short list of the eight main elements or defining characteristics for our particular branch of this wisdom verticel. And the one that caught my eye, you write, um, and I'm quoting you now, you write, we are moving steadily in the direction of revisioning contemplation, no longer in terms of monastic, otherworldly models, prioritizing silence and repose, but rather as a way of honing consciousness and compassion so as to be able to fully engage the world and become active participants in its transition to the higher collectivity, the next evolutionary unfolding. Now, on the surface, I mean, when I just kind of casually read that, I thought, hmm, are they moving away from silence? But, but then as I read it again, I don't think that's what you're saying. But I'm curious if you could unpack that a little for us and talk about how you see, how you see silence in our time when, when monasteries obviously are not getting new vocations. So I, I don't think monasteries are going to disappear. But Ten years ago, we had 17 Trappist monasteries in North America. I think we're down to 15 now. And in another 50 years, we may be down to five, unless God has something else in mind. I mean, there's always that. But, but I'm just curious, you know, where, where do you see silence going in terms of not only the monastic tradition, but I guess the larger human family? Well, it's a very interesting question, and it's, it's, it's very much on our plate, particularly at the Living School, which is, of course, uh, Richard Rohr's uh, outfit, and Richard Rohr's action and contemplation has been an issue for him for a long time. Mm-hmm. But what we're seeing and what we're hearing a lot from the world is that the, the mode in which silence has been packaged and delivered to people it comes with a lot of uh, very, very strong kind of ethnic, cultural, and uh, and patriarchal strings to it. That it tends to have been passed on in containers uh, that are patriarchal, celibate, enclosed, devaluing of certain expressions of human sexuality, Tending to tending to run on the the Pauline category that that the the conditions here uh, provide a kind of superior human being, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and and 
then when you throw that up against people who have who've taken silence and have really taken the outer the outer shell of it which is lots of periods where people don't talk and turn this into a kind of museum itself uh, a lot of people get the idea out in the culture that silence means going to places where nobody talks I know one one set of uh, one one monastic practice or one one popularization of it, where people are not allowed to flush toilets during meditation periods because there's a <laughs> there's a fear that this disrupts the silence. There's mm. you know, uh, so it the silence is equated with this kind of uh, I would say aggressive, almost fascist imposition. Mm. No noise. And and then, of course, it becomes really, really hard for people in the world who've got kids, who've got jobs. And God knows for people who are poor and can't afford the 200 plus a day now that you're putting down to get a room in a monastic hermitage. I mean, so is so it's very, very easy to confuse the wine and the wineskins. Mm-hmm. And say that silence is by nature an entitled male patriarchal, culturally bound uh, ethnocentric form, mm-hmm. and it's dying because it's lost its uh, its clout in the world. I don't believe that's so, because I think right where we started our original conversation is that if you if you take silence not as a set of external conditions which have to do with an absence of noise and take it as a set of internal conditions, which have to do with a presence of a constant, infinite, vigilant presence in the midst of the now, Mm -hmm. then silence becomes both silence can be essentially uh, as the author of the cloud of unknowing was trying to get to, it's not subject to the conditions of time and eight hours of silence is not necessarily better than 30 seconds of silence if you're really present and now this is not this is not a, a, a blanket uh, invitation to just throw over all the art forms because it's true that silence is very faithfully tendered and nurtured in places where it, where it's it's elaborated in time right. and yeah. elaborated within cold water it's a convenient way of doing it but I think the culture is uh, is demanding that we we're going to have to return to the center in in silence. I mean, the Quakers were not monastics. They went out and they had some of the state of the lying Green Beret type avant-garde social action and still did because they understood from the start that silence uh, is a mode of of bringing luminous heart seeing and presence into a world that's dying for it. And I think that we're going to need to be, uh, we're going to need to very, very lovingly sheer silence away from the culturally bound art forms in which it's traditionally been delivered mm-hmm. in order uh, to allow it to live in the, in the conditions of our own time. And I think that's one of the eras, that one of the real changes. My own sense on, on, on the monasteries is that you know, they're they're fighting the river at this point hmm. because the monasteries are dying, but they're not having any lack of guests. I mean, people are beating down the doors to get there. And there's any number of people that want to come for five years or 10 years or six months. Women want to join. 
And the, the thing is, it's transforming before our eyes into an ashram format. And the monks are fighting it tooth and nail because they're not used to it that way. But if, if there was the possibility of opening the door to say, well, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing right now. It's understanding that the way we serve is to bring people in and, and taking advantage of these traditions, these, these conditions that have been faithfully passed on to us from a, a legacy of 2,000 years in Christianity and intensely forming people in them, but with the idea right from the start that they're going to go out and function in the world out of this different kind of seeing. Then I think you would see monasteries around and full for the next 500 years. But it's because even within the monastic art form, they have so confused monastic silence with a set of external conditions rather than an internal presence mm -hmm. that they're stuck. And sometimes if a tree won't grow anymore, you just got to chop it down to, to let the next, uh, the life that still lives in its roots form a new tree. Yeah. Cynthia, this brings up a topic we often talk about in terms of toxic silence and, you know, the silence of oppression, rejection, prejudice, not being heard, silencing one another. And I'm curious, as a contemplative woman in a male-dominated, really, way of life, have you experienced any toxic silence, and has that been a part of your story personally at all? Well, I would say, first of all, that I think I would not let people get away with the term toxic silence. Mm. Okay. I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of silence. Yeah. Okay. Again, again, it's based on the outer conditions, mm -hmm. and this is because people have let people get away with it, that they think that silence is not speaking. Mm -hmm. there, there is no toxic silence, mm -hmm. because in real silence there is a power of presence that just mm -hmm. cuts right across. Mm -hmm. And when when Nelson Mandela was in prison, it was in prison for something like 19 years. The force of his presence, even in the silence, just cut through everything. Mm -hmm. And again and again and again, we have to realize that when you enter silence, you are never alone. You enter a luminous, imaginal stream of help and, and reality, the higher order of being. Mm. And so, so what people are calling silence is just a terrifying mistaking mm. of an outer form of not talking. And I would challenge them right at the heart on that, that what, what they're calling toxic silence is not sex, that is not silence, that is a destroying of the voice mm. and, and a destroying of the capacity to mm. speak to society yeah. from that level. Yeah. Uh, and, and yes, at that level... I have experienced that, and and a lot of what we've been talking about, you know, as a kind of a barbed sub-theme throughout this talk, uh, throughout this conversation, is my own response to that being unvoiced uh, in the religious academy, and I, I see it over and over and over again, that people that are trying to step forward to more integral visions are tripped up, are not honored that the publishing society and the transmission societies are basically dialing out, you know, paint shopping out the voices that could actually bring about the changes that, that yeah. are needed. That's a kind of unvoicing. But to call that silence, I think, does no honor to silence and does no mm -hmm. honor to the powers that we're going to find mm -hmm. by going 
deeply into that collective vital incubating place and mm-hmm. coming forth with a new mode of speaking. Mm. Yeah, I I suspect we'll be asking the question differently from here on out. Am I right, guys? <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. I We've mean, been schooled, yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, I mean, I think... It's I, good for us. No, I think it's great because, and I, and I love that you push back because the, yeah. I think the honor here is that we recognize out there that there has been these two modes and you've just... Per- been more precise now for us about what we've been calling toxic silence and other people have mentioned to us toxic silence. You're just being precise about that. And because we've always been focused on the idea of this quote, positive silence, we think that's the essential piece, but we don't want to ignore this silencing. And you just gave us much better language to get at that. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's like when there was a hashtag trend on Twitter a while back, you know, when, there was another wave of kind of acknowledging abuse in churches, not just in the Catholic church, but other churches. And so this hashtag came along, silence is not spiritual. And, you know, it it really bothered me. And I think you've just hit the nail on the head as to why it bothered me, because that's really doing violence to silence. Yeah. to say that, you know. Yeah. And and of course, the people who came up with that hashtag, they're trying to make an important statement. And the important statement is that the stripping of a voice is not spiritual. Right. Exactly. So, you know. Exactly. So. Well, you could, you could take this up, and it's a real issue I deal with. And if you keep looking at those bullet points, uh, you'll see that the, next to the last one, you know, I make a, a statement which I've already gotten some pushback from that says essentially <laughs> our school and our wisdom lineage is not a uh, what Ken Wilber would call a pluralistic level of consciousness. We're not into, you know, social action and activities. We're not the ones that are going to be leading the Me Too movement. We're not going to be. And it's not because these are not good things and and don't need to be done. But the what has really capped and you know and is a cancer in christian spirituality nowadays at, at its most liberal progressive edge and i'm going to take a risk and say this very boldly uh is the anger there's toxic anger hmm. and that comes that comes right out of this liberal progressive this is the highest you can go with the mind working with what it with, with what it can work and it's from that level that you've got all this rage and all this polarization and that the, the anger that comes from the, the in, indignation of the liberal progressive, the, the pluralistic level of consciousness, the progressive, the, the green, is no less in violence than the anger that comes out of the, you know, the, the, uh, the Trump evangelical fundamentalist fascist. It's, it's this toxic anger. And the only antidote to toxic anger lies at the level of the unitive heart. Right. And, and a, lot of my, a lot of my most socially sincere and idealistic and committed friends are really being caught and torn apart on that rack. Because they want to prove, on the one hand, that contemplation does not mean just turning your back on the world and 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 thinking spiritually about God, but on the other hand, when you get when you get involved in the massive injustices of our time, you wind up getting angry. 
Right. And what you don't understand that comes out of what, what that comes out of the training I've had in the work basically is there are two different selves here. You've got yourself that functions in the world, and that you've got this other self that's that's receiving, and you've got to get them in the right alignment. Mm. And this is a lot of what Jesus was trying to model for us. There was a lot to be angry about out in his culture, and yet you can't come at it with anger, right. or you wind up John the Baptist. You have to come at it bringing something from above into it. And people, because they're so angry, won't sit around and, and listen long enough and won't try it. And, and when I try and say to folks, you know, if we're going to get sidetracked into saying, well, you know, we've got this great group of people that are fitting and working well, but there's only three of them that are women, and so we've got to get two more women before we can have it. If we get doing that, we're going to lose the essential givenness of what's given to us to do. And and people get angry at this, but we've got to get beyond pluralistic anger. And I think that silence and holding on to what we know in our, our heart, hearts, uh, because you see what happens, Cassidy, and you'll never find this spoken about in theological treatises, because this is, uh, but <laughs> this higher level and coming right back to it, this silence is an infusion of harmonizing and synergizing love. And and if you just read some of the old Quaker texts where they were touching this mm. and where they could stand in the face of massive injustice, mm. massive oppression, both personal and societal, and still bring something of a sacramental presence into it, a healing presence, uh, it's because they could touch this other that comes through the silence. That's our lineage. We can't break faith with it, because if we break faith with it, we're the blind leading the blind and all falling into the mud. And so it comes back to where we started again. Uh, and I, I believe that only in finding us, once we find it, you know, my teacher Thomas Keating is there now. There's a whole band of folks of all the traditions that are gathered around carrying us along as we move through this crucial eye of the needle for human consciousness. But if we're just going to be so mad and pissed like the older older brother at the at the banquet with the prodigal son that we won't go in and dance because we're pissed because we've been left out, then we miss the chance to actually draw on the help there to be received and that nobody is going to get at the pluralistic level because you have to have penetrated that thick carapace of your ego defending itself before it can enter so if you're in silence my my feeling is you know the rubber hits the road here it's a political and prophetic commitment to stand true to what you and your heart of hearts know from your lineage about the transformative power that actually runs through this river mm. and not to throw it away, not to let it be used as a place to just go and, oh, I'll personally repair myself and then I'll go out and speak politically correctly. And, and, and you know, mm. you, we've got to draw on the almighty stream that flows and trust that it's there. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in the silence.
I mean, it's so profoundly mystical, Christian, monastic, you're saying. I mean, your basic, the basic groundwork is that anger would stop us from actually praying, would stop from the, the kind of the apatheia that we need to achieve and allow for agape to blossom in our hearts and our minds to move us. And that's basically what you're saying right here is that's what we're facing. Yeah, I'm just having a horrible thing. <laughs> so we should form a new a new kind of AA, agape apatheia, <laughs> anger anonymous. <laughs> you know, I really appreciate you saying this. To hear you unpack this, uh, to say about how you deeply, profoundly want this pluralistic, but then to see the limits of kind of anger and thinking and everything that I think, I, I think it speaks to my heart when I hear you say that, like my anger feels like it's limiting me. Uh, that seems accurate to say. And mm-hmm. so to look at it from a cultural, religious and you know political point of view, I think it's an important piece. I'm glad, so glad to hear you, someone who's interested in wisdom and in silence and, and sees this as an important tool it's great to hear you kind of reframe this and, and invite us back into our tradition, into the lineage, as you say. I think what I'm hearing is that, you know, there's this, the work still needs to be done. The question is, is how to do the work, the work of inclusion, the work of radical right. equality and inclusivity, uh, to quote our friend, Brother Elias, how to do that work from this place of love rather than just this place of reactive anger. And without that grounding in the contemplative work, uh, we just keep kind of falling off one end or the other. I, um, I was going to mention, and I think, Cynthia, you've already spoken to this so beautifully, but the first time I heard you speak, it was in Birmingham about, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago. And you said, at the very beginning of your talk, you said, contemplation is the antidote to fundamentalism. And of course, that has just stayed with me ever since. What I'm hearing also here is contemplation is the, is the antidote to the angry response to fundamentalism. So how we can hold both of those, I think, becomes really important. Anything more you would want to say about this question of a contemplative response to the political climate that we find ourselves in? Well, you know, I have another essay in that book that you were referring to, which is actually came out of a uh, an experience I had at Tintern Abbey. In on the eve of the uh, the, the twenty sixteen political election, mm-hmm. and I'd been I had been having a bad feeling about that election all week, and it just so happened that friends of mine, British friends and I, said, "Let's go out to Tintern Abbey," and I didn't know what Tintern Abbey was. You know, I only knew it from Wordsworth, uh, and discovered when I got out there that it was a Cistercian Abbey that it had had thrived in, you know, near Bristol in England, right on the England-Wales border for for about 400 years with an extraordinarily strong spiritual culture, as I was about to discover. But as I was there, I found myself more and more drawn to it. What, what happened uh, was that it got sacked in a single night in this rampage uh, of uh, the dissolution of the monasteries when Henry and Henry VIII and Oliver Cromwell and all decided they had to get rid of all things Catholic. So one night this monastery was fallen upon, you know, and uh, the sacred vessels of the altar were carried off. The richer monks were carried into captivity. The others were killed. Um, it was the, the place was burnt. And it sits there now with a gaping 
empty space where the roof was and a gaping empty space that used to be the high altar, uh, the, the stained glass window behind the high altar. So I find myself wandering over and getting called to this high altar. And before I know it, I'm prostrating myself on this now grassy carpet. And I hear essentially something saying very clearly in the way this, this knowledge works. This happens. That things that are good and fragile and precious can be destroyed in an instant. And that because there is good does not necessarily mean that they have any shelf life in time. And the anger and the violence can rise up and in a minute can put you end everything. And he says, you have to have the stomach to stand up to that. I also knew, incidentally, exactly how the election was going to go by the time I got my nose out of the mud. Uh, but it also said, uh, but listen, we're talking to you now and you're hearing. And it says, the highest benchmark of love, courtesy, generosity, and beauty that is put into the world will never vanish from the world. And when it's time, it will restore itself instantly. And what I understood and what's really carried me is that our goal right now as contemplatives going through what I believe is a necessary winnowing time is not panic and fix, but is to stand present to the highest possible benchmark of what we understand of the love, the good, the true, and the beautiful, as it was passed passed on to us, uh, to continue to model what it means to be a human being mm. in, de in decency and in Christic love. And to continue as we can by gathering in these little numinous wisdom schools where through the mode of silence, synergy and wisdom and compassion and coherence flow, to move forth into the world in small ways, singular, singular attractors, does Ilio Dalio call them, uh, to, to simply be human beings and to not desecrate the beauty of what's been entrusted to us to carry for a while. Mm. Uh, and the rest will take care of itself. It has to get cut back because we've been living, if in nothing else, 800 years of fundamental mistakes mm -hmm. about who the human being is, how the human brain works, what selfhood is. And this cancer of anger is only the final paroxysm mm. of an 800-year mistake. Mm hmm it, it's got to get cut down, and it's not going to be pretty. And things that we can't understand how how God could let this happen to the world, global warming, vast disruption to the biospheres. You know, the universe is is sturdy. It'll withstand it'll withstand some predators for ten thousand years or so. I mean, I don't think it's that bad a cut, but but I I I think that our our methodology is, to, first of all, to be able to stand and look that beast right in the eye without panicking. Because the, the disease of crippling, disorienting paralysis has just got our country stopped dead in its tracks. We have to bring a better energy. And we don't have to solve the social problems. That's what we have the Internet for. Uh, we simply have to be human beings. Cynthia, you have been so generous with your time, and I just wanted to ask you a question we always ask our guests. 
do you have a silence hero? I have a feeling that you may surprise us or school us with your answer here, but it doesn't have to be uh, anybody famous. It could be a personal person or it could be a famous person. But I think uh, all of us would really be interested in hearing your answer to that question. Well, of course, I would I would bring up uh, the first one was, of course, my teacher, Brother Raphael Robin at the monastery at Snowmass, who was a hermit who uh, he was the monastery hermit, but he wasn't a tough hermit like, you know, he always dreamed that he'd had more silence than he did. He might up a lot of the time just doing the mechanicals and the plumbings and things. Mm -hmm. But he was the one who introduced me to the difference between hermit as an outer form and hermit as, uh, as Aramite, meaning the one who went into the desert for the actual struggle with the consciousness. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, if you're just sitting there in silence and it's the same old you sitting there, you aren't doing anything. You're in your time, you're wasting God's time. Right. Uh, but he he understood silence as providing the conditions for a radical inner honesty. And he read uh, he read up at his cabin the Bible in Lexio Divinis style, and he read one of the classic textbooks from the Gurdjieff work, the Nichols Commentaries, psychological commentaries on the teachings of Uspensky and Gurdjieff, and took to light silence as a pathway for the complete transformation of consciousness. And anything less than that was not silence. Right. It was the charade of silence. Mm. And so he held me to a very, very high standard on that. And always, you know, I got all excited about being named a, 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 a hermit, a diocesan hermit for a while and, and asked him whether we could put together some of his, some of his old stuff to make a habit and he says that, that the only habit a true monk should wear is a soul wreathed in God. Yeah, yeah. And his, uh, his tendency always to make himself completely incognito in a crowd, not to call attention in any way so that if you didn't catch it in his being, you didn't catch it. Mm -hmm. He said when the, inner, when the inner silence matches the outer silence, then you have stillness. And it was to that place that he was pushing. But he wasn't going to allow you to get to the inner stillness by repressing or throttling. Mm. He said, you know, he said there had to be an absolute facing and living through of everything. And he said that part of what happens in, in outer silence, if you're doing it correctly, is you squirm. <laughs> you know, Amen. Uh, <laughs> you know, you just look at parts of yourself that you can avoid looking at when you're too busy putting on your habit and running for dear life. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he was the one who really, for me, fused the great pathways of contemplative mystical silence and the pathway of what we now call mindfulness mm. and showed me how to put them together as a single path of transformation. Mm. And he would have to be more than anybody else my, my silence hero. Mm. Uh, yeah. So I let you have the question. You thank know. you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That's wonderful. I'll call him my mentor. Uh, my <laughs> right. Well, we we really really appreciate you taking the time. You you've been very generous, and I know uh, this has been very nurturing for me. Mm. So I just appreciate your your fidelity to silence and your your voice. Thank you so much. Yes. Okay. 
We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at cassidyhall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world. Thank you.